You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined, this is episode 77. And I'm joined with Dr. Quinn Hennick of Clinical Athlete. Um, I'm going to let you just start right off by kind of introducing yourself and uh, kind of a little background on uh, who you are. Yeah. First, thanks for having me on, Kevin. I'm, I'm excited for this. I am a physical therapist in Orange County, California. I started, I guess, if we, if we rewind, I started... Um, with a goal of becoming a strength and conditioning coach. That's what I went to undergrad for and was a Midwest guy. I went to school in Indiana and got a degree in exercise science. And I worked at various quote unquote sports performance locations uh, all around Indiana and, and Kentucky and worked as a strength and conditioning coach. And it felt like I had a knowledge gap in that when somebody was coming to me with an injury or, or, something like that. I didn't feel like I had the tools to manage that and build their strength and conditioning program. So I thought physical therapy school would be the, you know, the perfect bridge to that. I, I figured I'd be LeBron James's student PT for like three years and it would be, uh, you know, it'd be cool. And so I went to PT school in university of Indianapolis in 2010. And obviously it wasn't like that, but it did give me some great tools, I think, to, to fill the gaps that I felt I had in, in my, uh, in my knowledge and graduated and started, you know, I left off kind of picked up where I left off working with athletes and in a sports performance facility. But this time I had a physical therapy clinic in there and I've been kind of bouncing around different facilities that way in the last, um, five and a half years and moved out to Southern California about four years ago to do the same thing inside of the, uh, juggernaut training systems facility that they opened up out here in orange County. And they had a clinic in there for a couple of years. They went back to being completely online and now, and then I moved 20 minutes up the road into a weightlifting gym, which was basically who I was working with for the past, you know, three years since I had moved to California was barbell sport athletes. And, and there's a weightlifting gym called SoCal weightlifting. And, uh, that's where my office is now. And so I got a, I got my little room and my, my PT, uh, bench and my, and my desk. And then I open the door and there's a big old weightlifting gym and, and nothing but barbells and bumpers and platforms. And it's pretty cool. So I'm in a, I'm in a great setting and, uh, and yeah, I think I couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah, it is. I do. I do kind of appreciate the setup that you have where you, you know, you're kind of in a, in a facility and, you know, we kind of talked about this, um, a few weeks ago, but, uh, like even just having like Zach, Mike, Steph, having them around the gym training, like not even with a clinic inside, like is extremely helpful. So I would imagine having a, a room in there definitely, uh, adds to that dynamic a little bit. Well, it's cool. Yeah. I, you know, the, the coaching staff and I, we get together all the time and, and just kind of talk shop. And, um, it's, it's nice cause there's never really any big problems in regard, you know, weightlifting already has a pretty low and barbell sports in general, pretty low incidence of like acute catastrophic injury. And most of these things are just kind of like sensitivities. And, you know, this is kind of giving me a hard time, that type of thing, but we can, I'm talking to the coaching staff and we can just manage that stuff really, really easily before it becomes anything 
that actually needs more of my attention. So it's just a really great dynamic. Yeah. And I, I, so my coach, um, he said like one of the biggest things that he learned from Louis Simmons back in the day was how to train through an injury. And I think, mm. you know, and it, it's like you said, these are sensitivities. I wouldn't even label them as injuries. Cause then in a lot of times it's just mainly discomfort that performance isn't even being affected with, but under those circumstances, like, you know, even just you calming them down and giving them the confidence to continue training or to keep that, you know, because they can literally talk themselves into decreased performance. And now it is an injury. Um, and I think from a performance standpoint, like even just having those options there and having somebody there that can help navigate the training to keep you training and keep you moving towards the goal of a bigger total, I think is extremely valuable. And hopefully, uh, this field goes more into that route because I think it can be uh, extremely beneficial to have that uh, joint relationship between the medical staff and the coaching staff, especially for a sport. Like you said, like there aren't many, like nobody's tearing an ACL squatting. So there's right. not like yeah. those major catastrophic injuries to deal with. It's just like kind of combining, you know, the coaching staff coming together and just making decisions to keep training moving forward in a positive direction. I think that's huge. I do have a, How'd you get hooked up with a juggernaut being from the Midwest? So I, when I was in a physical therapy school or before physical therapy school, I, I worked at a couple of places, like I had said, and a couple, just one of them was a CrossFit gym actually. And my buddy, my training partner, who also was a coach at that particular gym, when I went to physical therapy school, he he ended up owning that gym, that very gym. And then, so he was going around to a bunch of different seminars in the area and he went to an elite FTS seminar in Ohio and Chad was still with them at the time. He was still with elite FTS. And so he hooked up with Chad and just kind of, um, and Brennan Lilly was out that way too. And so, Brandon lived in Kentucky and, and he and uh, Chad were good friends. And so Chad would actually be in the Midwest area quite a bit doing seminars with Brandon. And so they ended up, Chad kind of branched off of elite FTS, started juggernaut right around that same time and did a, did one of his first juggernaut seminars at that gym that my buddy now owned. And that happened to be the gym that when I graduated from physical therapy school, I moved my clinic into for the very first time. That was my first start. So I met Chad through the owner of that gym through my, you know, at that time business partner, because he had brought Chad in for a seminar and I wrote some, and then he and I started doing videos. We had a little thing going called dark side strength. Um, and so we were writing blogs and doing videos and Chad picked some of those up and put them on the juggernaut website. And I wrote a blog post about knees out in the squat. And I, uh, I did some, I did some calling out of the old supple leopard, camp and um just my kind of old uh, young douchey self had the brass okay. to do that I, I wouldn't it's funny because i wouldn't write that blog now um but back then it was like the thing that helped and and then so chad picked that blog up and put it on the juggernaut website and it blew up so it ended up just turning into him asking me to write for him and then him uh flying me out to help at a seminar and then finally being like presenter at a seminar and it just kind of blew up from there. So over, over the course of a couple of years, so just mutual friends. So what, what was that article about the knees out article? It was, it was about um, specifically cueing knees out in the squat kind of going against just normal biomechanics. Like the exact, it, it was around that time where the craze of, 
shoving your knees out like in ex- in a, in an exaggerated fashion, like way beyond the plane of the foot, was like in vogue because of. Uh, of just some books and some, and some videos that had come out recently, you know, the main mainstream CrossFit beginner weightlifter crew was starting to get that, you know, people who don't really, really train hard weren't picking that stuff up because they know that the knees just bend and straighten and you just put them right over the foot. But there was this whole big controversy on, on cueing knees out. And one of the big weightlifting coaches out this way, got a hold of it, Bob Ticano, and he wrote a couple pieces on it. And then, uh, and then I shared my take, which I didn't think anybody would give a shit. And, and, um, it ended up being a bigger deal. And in fact, CrossFit HQ flew me out to California and, and, uh, we did like a little, a little studio debate with, uh, Jacob Sipkin, I think you had on your show and, and, yeah. and, uh, Kelly Starrett and a couple other people. Long Kilgore from Starting Strength. It was, it was interesting. It ended up being something way bigger than I could had ever imagined. But I want to hear. I want to hear more about this meeting. So, you guys were discussing the biomechanics of the squat. I'm assuming. Yeah. So, in in various media's, there were just some pictures of of people of social media Kings cueing the squat in a way that you would literally shove your knees out to the max of the range, like hip extra rotation, but the knees would be like 10 feet outside of the plane of the foot. And and then the thought would thought was, and the toes were straight forward, mind you. So so yeah, of course. Right. I remember this now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Toes straight forward, knees way out. And you know, there were always pictures of air squats. There were, there was, they were never loaded. And it was always, this is the way to squat, to maximize uh, torque of the hip and to also minimize knee injury risk. And uh, my position was just, that's just, that's ridiculous. Just let the knees bend and straighten and put your feet where you want and, you know, respect individual variants and difference, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so it was just, it could have been a, a two second conversation, but it turned into something more. Um, it was just a roundabout. It was just a going in circles, going in circles, straw man. We're, we're trying to prevent ACL injuries. Um, and then our side was like, well, we never said ACL injuries are good, but we also don't get ACL injuries during a squat, blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was just a social media buzz. It's interesting, but you know, even though they flew you out, that's kind of how the world acts nowadays on social media. It's just basically nobody has a discussion. It's me trying to prove to you my way is better. You trying to prove to me your way is better. Then we call each other names and we block each other and then we ignore <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It used to be, uh, it was my understanding that discussions would be like you'd, you'd argue and then you'd go buy your, uh, then you go buy each other a drink. And, yeah. and have a, you know, that's, that's, that's how it should be. Um, right. And I don't understand either with a sport in which we compete. Like, I don't need to convince you my way. Like, we'll step on the platform at some point and we'll just see which one's better. It's kind of how most sports work anyways. Like, every team has different ways of their offense and defense and how they run and stuff. I don't understand why, like, people get so butthurt over, uh, over a lot of the stuff out there. And that's kind of the topic that I want to, like, discuss uh, with having you on here is... <laughs> speaking up and being sort of like a counterculture in we'll call it fitness in the fitness world. Because I, you know, for me, I know sometimes it gets frustrating to, uh, you know, like for example, I, uh, 
and I have a podcast with Dr. Lonecki coming out uh, tomorrow. I posted one of his, his uh, articles explaining the hypertrophy thing and how it, he doesn't believe it's a contributor to uh, strength. And, you know, it's just kind of something anecdotally I've watched and I've stopped caring about so much. And like people just get more muscle mass from lifting weights. Yeah. So I, I posted this article and the internet got fucking pissed at me. <laughs> like all of a sudden I turned on my phone. I had like 80 comments on this post and I was like, holy shit. Like I, I, I struck a chord here. So when you wrote that article at the time uh, and you've kind of grown like clinical athlete, uh, like you guys get quite a few followers on uh, Instagram. You guys put out webinars uh, and lots of educational material. And a lot of it goes against the norms of what you see everywhere else. I kind of want you to discuss like that process and like the difficulties and, and maybe even get into what you feel is the right and wrong way to go about doing those things. Yeah. It's interesting because I think it all kind of depends on what you're, what your angle is like, are you trying to educate truly or are you trying to just be the black sheep to be the black sheep or just argue for the sake of arguing? Cause I think there's a big difference and it changes the approach. But what's funny is it goes against what we do is we just try to get people to think a little bit and the things that, that we do or, or the content that we put out is it maybe seems like it's not mainstream, but then there's this whole other side that's just uh, kind of the, the, the crew that is okay with uncertainty, the, the, that embraces uncertainty. And I think that's the biggest thing. Something that seems controversial is only controversial because it challenges somebody's beliefs. And another way of, of putting that is it probably challenges their emotions because our, our emotions and our beliefs are very closely tied together. So when you give an example of, oh, hypertrophy may not be a primary determinant of strength. You know, that's, that goes against these beliefs that are just very easy to get a hold of logically. Oh, you know, a larger muscle can produce more force. That's something you learn in like exercise science 101. So you just stop thinking about that because you just, that's just the way of the world. And then when you hear something questioning that you're like, Oh my God, that's bullshit. Cause you don't even, you don't even think that the thing that you believe believed for the past, however many years may not be the w- true in the, in the, to the extent that you believe it's true. And so like that example that you just gave, I think is just a very good example of what we try to do, which is just get people to think. I don't think anything that we put out is, is all of that controversial, to be honest. It, it, it's just, embracing, like I said, it's just embracing the uncertainty of things and calling into question certain dogmas um, and and providing perhaps an alternative explanation to things. And for some people, that's uncomfortable. And for others who have been who have who have trained themselves to question and to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and uncertain it's more of a refreshing breath or it's a it's a breath of re, you know what what do they say uh it's a breath of fresh air <laughs> and so 
when you say, like, you know, I don't even care if you say, uh, hypertrophy may not be a main determinant of strength. You know, when I hear that, I'm like, that's interesting. And I can see it both sides. And I can also say anecdotally, our weightlifters have a lot of muscle mass. We don't do a lot of hypertrophy training. We just, we just lift weights. And so that makes sense. But I also in my mind say, if I really want to have an opinion about that, I need to dive into the, to the literature a little bit more to even have a discussion. So I just kind of stopped there. It doesn't necessarily bother me. It just gets me thinking. And I think that's the biggest difference. And going back to what I had said in the beginning, which is what is your main objective? Is just is it to show people how smart you are and that you guys go against the grain? Or is it to actually educate and get people thinking? And so what I've found is that there have been periods of time where I think that I've slipped into the former, where I just want people to know that that we're questioning things and we're going against the grain and it starts to, it starts to influence the way that you do things. And then you're not actually open. You're just as bad. You're just kind of on the other side. You're not open to discussion with your, with your thing, with the things that you're using to question the dogma, which completely contradicts the the whole point of, of things. So it, I, we don't do it in a way that we're trying to prove anybody wrong. If we put out content that maybe goes against mainstream norms or, or mainstream beliefs, we just want to foster the discussion. And, you know, if people end up research, if people end up thinking about a certain topic and, and considering these alternative solutions or these alternative explanations of, of whatever particular topic it is and end up going back to what they were doing before, that's totally fine. At least you experimented and at least you investigated the alternatives and you got to thinking. And I think that's extremely important that we're not just locked into what we're doing because it's mindless and we just assume it to be true, but we actually go and investigate. And if you end up deciding that what you were doing was the best case regardless, and that that's great. I, you know, that happens to me all the time. Um, so that's just kind of a, you know, a microcosm, I guess, of, of what, of what we do. Yeah. And I think, um, like I know for me, so it's not like, and I would imagine, and this is kind of where I want to take this conversation too, because I'm assuming you kind of went through a similar thing. It's not like we just got out of school and felt that we had all these answers that go against the grain. Like I know for me, I believed everything that I had learned to be true and I applied it. But then I observed and I observed that things just weren't working the way that I was believing them to work. And over time, keeping an open mind and being skeptical about those things and, you know, measuring those objective viewpoints, I've kind of been able to change the way that I do things. And as I gain new perspectives, I'll constantly continue to go back to the old ways of thinking and be like, all right, so with this framework how would this stuff apply? And in a lot of cases, you can take that new framework that you have and you can start poking a lot of holes in it and be like, all right, well, maybe I'm not onto something. Um, Like I know for me, once I got into the dynamic systems theory thing, I could take that framework and I could apply it back to those other things that we believe to be true with a different perspective. And it it fits the framework. So even though that the framework is probably not correct, it may be less wrong, but it can at least guide our decision-making process as coaches to, um, 
in, increased performance, more opt, optimal is a bad word, but for lack of a better word, we yeah. can increase performance more optimally than we could have before. Um, yeah, no, go ahead. I was just no, gonna... no. I agree. I agree with you. I think. I think exploring other frameworks and other models give you a better context to, to the whole. So if uh, a friend and I, who he's a strength and conditioning coach at a university in the Midwest, and he subscribes to a lot of the dynamical systems theories approaches and, and um, a constraints that approach to coaching. And he's, you know, coaching D one athletes. And, you know, he was talking to me about the problems he's having intellectually. He's like, well, how can I, you know, how can I reconcile the camps who are pro dynamical systems versus, you know, these camps that are uh, pro motor program, you know, engrams and, and these types of things. It's very top down motor learning model. And he was like, can you just pick and choose which model, you know, when you want and these types of things. And they were good questions, but you know, I, I, we don't necessarily have to think of all of these different ways to model the world as mutually exclusive. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at is as you, as you start to understand different frameworks, you start to just kind of mold it to your own and other things start to make sense. Like there's a, you know, the motor, motor program model in that you just practice the motor program and, and, uh, and you get good at that and it becomes software and it's, and it's just in there. Right. But the problem with that is, well, when you have a, a, a chaotic environment, then that motor program falls apart. But you know, what do we talk about with a constraints led approach to coaching? It's individual tasks and environment. So there's still individual there. So this quote unquote motor program model can still work to hone in the, the, the pattern of whatever movement solution that you're trying to get a hold of. And then, then you work on constraining the environment and the task in order to make that motor pattern more flexible. So I, I think that, I think these models start to flow into each other a lot more. And, but we, naturally try to compartmentalize and dichotomize and separate because that's, that's how we make sense of things. Uh, but they're not all that different when you really dig into them. No, they're not. And uh, you bring up a good point about how, you know, we reduce everything to the sum of its parts. So even for the hypertrophy thing, right? So I think, you know, what you end up getting is you get the research is just so inconsistent on almost anything. You can cherry pick whatever you want to to prove your point. And with the hypertrophy thing, you know, there are some research studies that show if somebody takes steroids and they don't take steroids, they increase strength regardless of training compared to a placebo. Mm -hmm. So there's their argument that, um, muscle size increases strength. Now there's all kinds of other things that we tend to forget about. Like, like you said, like the individual. So if we have the exact same, if we could clone an individual, they have the exact same training age. They are the exact same genetic makeup, all of those things, the lifter that's more confident. So if we have one of them and we just feed them with nothing but positive self-talk and we have the other one and we just tell them how much of a piece of shit they are the entire time, the one with the positive self-talk is going to have increases in strength just from that aspect alone. And you can never truly separate in the research one piece. 
so you had brought up that, you know, we're a, we're a chaotic system and there's going to be all, all these inconsistencies and stuff. And I think, you know, over time you start to learn that you need a framework that allows you to address all of these inconsistencies. So I, I went through this and like, I was doubting myself hardcore at this, at this one point. And I was so confused and I could find research on both sides that just made me even more confused. And I sat down and I was like, all right, what do we actually know from if, if none of this, these journals existed, if I had never gone to school and never had any of these things, all I have was the years of experience in front of me. What do I know actually has worked to improve strength that I can definitively say this works. And I was left with a very short list of lift heavy, lift heavy. That's it. And if we could run a meet three days a week, all right, great. We're in business. We'll get better. But of course there are other downfalls to doing something like that. Um, so I kind of just like worked backwards, um, and built it from there. I'd like to hear your, uh, process with, um, coming up to a, a similar approach with the dynamic systems theory stuff. It's been similar, uh, Kind of, I, I think that I've had these existential crises throughout my coaching and physical therapy career, and weight and my competitive weightlifting career as well. The thing that I'm having the most trouble with is these deterministic these determined deterministic models of progression. In that, like, let's take hypertrophy for example. You need to build hypertrophy then you layer on strength, then you layer on power. Let's say you're a weightlifter or even a field sport athlete. Um, or if, it, you know, if you're a powerlifter, then you layer on a peak or something like that. But when we look at these, when you look at something like the dynamical systems, these things are happening concurrently as in, like you mentioned, when people lift heavy, they tend to pack on a little muscle. Like, check out the weightlifters at the world stage. Their legs are massive. They don't have a problem with hypertrophy, but they don't do, I'm, I haven't seen no international coach that I've talked to necessarily goes through these prolonged blocks of hypertrophy. They change the training stimulus based to decrease monotony, but it's not necessarily with this determined focus of, of adaptation to layer on, to then layer on a different adaptation to then layer on a different adaptation. So my thought was kind of similar to what you said, what are we actually, what are we actually trying to do here? Um, and what I started to realize is that the things that I was seeing that just didn't make a lot of sense as in, people performing, hitting their PRs when they're supposed to be the most fatigued, um, you know, four to six weeks before competition when we're really, when we're really crushing them. And then when they do PR, it's like, holy shit, imagine what's going to happen when we taper and then their performance dips. It was those questions. And in the beginning, it was just like, oh, well, you know, it's just, that's just how it goes. Something was wrong in the, in the program, or uh, maybe we didn't taper enough, you know, these, these, these types of things. Um, and then to 
if we would program high hypertrophy blocks and then it would take weeks for them to reacclimate to actually doing the competition movements um, to really get a groove in in that sense and it was like you know this this compartmentalized blocked approach is is the timeline on it is not working. Um, it's, it's not having this concurrent effect where they're not holding on to these, to these adaptations just kind of naturally as we, as we do something else for a, for a block of time. So it was just all these questions that the textbook doesn't really answer for you. Um, and so when you started, when I started to dive into the, the variability of, of the human system, a lot of this stuff started to make sense. And weightlifting is an interesting sport because the technique, the technical aspect of it is, is the barrier to entry is a little higher than powerlifting, but it's not nearly as chaotic. It's not a chaotic environment. You, the barbell and weights are the same. You, you're going to be lifting on a platform. It's not like you're outside and there's, there's rain you know, pelting you in the face and the barbell all of a sudden becomes alive and it tries to tackle you. Like, you know, a field sport athlete has a way more chaotic environment. So I actually found it, I found the sport of weightlifting to be a really, really controlled way to start to implement this constraints led approach where, especially for a beginner who's learning the coordinated patterns of the snatch and clean and jerk we can just, we can use variation to learn the positions and to, to develop that perception and action coupling, like for somebody who's scared to get under the bar during a snatch. Um, we can manipulate constraints to help with that coordinative pattern. All the while, we can build the physical qualities that that will end up helping when technique and, and strength kind of collide. So we can, we can take the low hanging fruit and the movements that have a lower barrier to entry, like the, like the squat and the deadlift and push those while the athlete is learning the coordinative patterns of the snatch and the clean and jerk. And we just found that we could do things a lot more concurrently than in this deterministic block approach. So did you use uh, like typical, so it sounded like you'd use typical like peaking strategies before. Um, what do you do now leading into a meet? Have you changed that? We, we, it's a much more individual approach for the athletes who we have some data on. Um, we'll take, we'll take what, seems to be the pattern for them because some of our athletes do seem to do a little worse the closer they are the heavier sessions closer to a meet and seem to be a little bit do a little bit better with what would look like a traditional taper and that's a hundred percent based on their past meet experience but i would say on as a whole on average we are they are training harder up until the meet. Um, it's, it's less of a, a planned, deliberate, 
taper unless there's there's some type of extenuating circumstances like they're um, really seem fatigued like their bar speeds are slowing um, and we haven't we haven't decreased training but everything seemed to slow down their subjective reports are you know lethargic and all these types of things we may taper them down there but if things are rolling we go we'll keep rolling and you know maybe the last the last half of the week of competition we we taper down the volume a little bit uh, but it's it's just not nearly as much of a planned drawn out process of an actual of an actual taper like if you were to graph it um, because people just, I think they get deconditioned. I think what, they, they lose fitness and we haven't been good enough. Maybe it's just us, you know, but I, I when I talk to coaches, this happens all the time, you know, the, uh, yeah, we just didn't, the taper didn't hit this time. And it's maybe, maybe the taper did hit. Maybe the, ta- maybe the taper hit too hard and, and you lost a little bit of that, of that fitness that you had been accumulating over the course of the weeks prior to the taper. So we have, we really still haven't figured that out, but what we'll do now is for new, when we're try, for the newer athletes, when we're actually trying to gain some data on this and see what works best for them, the approach will be to train through as opposed to taper. Because if we train through, we, and then we, they just have a response. Whatever happens, happens. Then we know we can tweak from there. But when you add a taper, if you don't know anything about an athlete necessarily, or you don't have a whole lot of blocks under your belt, data under your belt, training under your belt to really see patterns with them, and, and you throw things like tapers into the mix, that, that's another factor that you have to, have to take into account that confuses the situation. Did the taper help or was it the one, or was it the thing that hurt? You have no idea. Um, if they did, if they did well, or if they bombed out, you know, that you, you don't actually know whether the taper helped or hindered. So if you, if you train through, you know, if, if training is going relatively well and you train through, at least you have more of a, a, a controlled environment to then make decisions on in the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, cause I experienced something similar. So we used to test 17 to 22 days out. Um, and then from there it would taper down. So you might take like 80% for singles the following week and then 75% for singles later in that week. And then very light the week of, um, and what I found is like, you know, the nerves on competition day were very high. Um, and I realized that the longer I stretched out heavier singles, the less nerves that there were. And now even the week of on day one, we might take a squat that's close to an opener mm-hmm. uh, for a single and a deadlift. That's maybe a last warm up on day two, and then just kind of taper off. Like I I'm at the point now where I could basically, if somebody came to me and they're like, I want to compete this weekend, I would just have them take three days off and I'd have a general idea of what they're capable of hitting on the platform that given day. Um, Cause we compete every single day in the gym. Um, I think, you know, when you look into the research, there was some that showed that you can hold on to strength for over a month. So I think this was with a leg extension where they come in once a month and do a one rep max leg extension test and strength numbers just maintained throughout. And this was, I forget how long the actual training protocol was. I want to say like two months. Um, and then they did it for six months after. So there was a, a very decreased delay in uh, strength because even that sixth 
that six months showed similar one rep max uh, testing. So of course, a squat, bench, deadlift, weightlifting, you know, snatch, clean and jerk, much more skill oriented. So my guess is, is the skill that drops off uh, much faster than the actual strength. And then like, obviously the confidence of handling heavier weights. Um, so for us, you know, I think there's a skill to lifting heavier, like sub max weights, like, and I'm talking like 75, 80% where you're not really pushing the envelope. It's a different skill to lift that than it is to lift something, you know, 93, 94, 95% and up. So we try to keep those skilled lifts in the, uh, in the actual program longer. Um, do you do something similar? Yeah. Well, and you meant, so that, that evidence that you showed, and I've, I, I've seen those papers and I need to dig into that a little bit more. So here I am talking about them when, when it's been a while. Um, but a lot of these studies are on populations that we're not necessarily talking about. Um, a lot of them, a lot of strength training evidence is on untrained populations and we'll take something like the leg press, you know, that, so holding on to strength for a month, that's kind of where the idea of these, where you layer on qualities, this is your, this is your hypertrophy block. This is your strength block. This is your power block. Because if you can hold on to the strength for four weeks, then you can, then you do a strength block before your peaking block. And now you're, you know, you're layering on the peak on top of your strength, these types of things. But it's to your point, the, the leg press is a whole lot different than these more complex coordinative patterns that you're talking about. This, the load is a whole lot different the, the, the force velocity profile. I mean, the, the force time curve is weight is different rate of force development. When you're talking about a more complex coordinative pattern, like a squat or a snatch and clean jerk or, or a deadlift, you know, the, the off the floor, just because the bar is slow because it's heavy, doesn't mean that there's not a high, high rate of force development. And to coordinate that pattern, as you mentioned, is a skill that needs to be practiced. So holding on to your leg press or leg extension strength, you know, and where you don't have to worry about rate of force and you don't have to coordinate the rest of your body is, is way, way different. It's just, it's simply not the same thing. So in a strength block, this is the problem that we were running into as we were doing these strength blocks and then we were doing like a snatch and clean and jerk, lots of variations and lots of, lots of complexes and, um, oh, non-specific things, but they were lighter. And when it was time to then taper, we were, we were trying to shake off the rust. Bef- you know, it was like, you're strong, but your timing is way off. And it took a little bit for that to kind of come back and it just wasn't, it wasn't aligning with the meat. They weren't, they weren't crisp. They might've been super strong, but the lifts themselves, the ones that we actually compete in weren't quite there. Um, so it was, it's been helpful for us to have the snatch and clean and jerk in there, no matter what block we're in to some extent at relatively heavy loads. So they don't forget what that feels like. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I think, you know, what I try to do in the gym, you know, when we get a new, a new variation, I give them, you know, week one, they take fives, just a lot of exposure to it, just to kind of figure it out. Fours the next week, like same idea with a little bit more weight. And then we start to load it up. And what I want to see with the weight on the bar, and this is why I give them 
certain weights that I want them to put on the bar is I want to see an emotional response happen. Um, I think too often we train at weights that they know that they can just hit and it doesn't have that same emotional response as a heavier weight or a competition does. Because you talked about how the environment is pretty much the same uh, for a powerlifting or weightlifting meet. Like you're on a platform, it's a barbell, it's, it's all of that. But the heavier weights in the competition atmosphere does create an emotional response. So I try to mimic that as much as humanly possible in the gym by putting certain weights on the bar that are going to get that emotional response. And all of those movement patterns start with our emotions, our perceptions, our past experiences before we even hit that attempt. And I think that's what a general taper or block periodization or like, yeah, people hate tens, but nobody's getting that same emotional response from the actual weight on the bar. It's just more, uh, this metabolically sucks. Uh, I feel the skill is different for it as well. And I remember listening to, uh, this was recently a podcast with Bo Moore when, you know, and this guy has been competing forever. And he was like, I, I never take time off because my head can't get back into lifting those heavier weights. And like you said, there was a transition process from the hypertrophy to the strength from those, uh, from those strength blocks. And it was kind of, um, you know, this new acclimation phase that he had to go through to handle the heavier weights, uh, tended to kind of hold you guys back a little bit. And I, I witnessed the, the exact same thing. Um, and I'll tell you like now we even spend less time in the gym than we were before and we're getting better results. Um, have you seen similar things? Yeah. Yeah. There's some, I, I think to really get a, a feel for your, for how each lifter is different in regards to having to take time off, you just got to really be, be there and you've got to really know them and intuitively, you know, there's anecdotes of weightlifters like Hussein Razazadeh taking two months off completely after the Olympics and just playing ping pong, you know, maybe because that's what he needed. Uh, our athletes are, are, they may be mentally burnt, after a meet or something like that, or after training, but I'll tell you what, so the, the, the ones that we don't see for two or three weeks after a meet, when they come back, it takes a long time for them to start ramping back into training where they feel like things are clicking again. And if, if you, and that goes back, I mean, gosh, if we just talk about workloads, you know, these things, these injury risks in regards to spikes or troughs, in workload, I think it. I think the same thing can be said for just skill acquisition. Um, these these periods of time where you then just walk away from the sport. When you come back, you've got to reacclimate again. And if you, and then our tendency is to accumulate quickly because we want to make up for lost time, right? So we spike it back up, and we train really, 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 really hard. But then we need a time off again. So to your point if you can maintain somewhat of a chronic level of fitness, then you can just kind of bump it up a little bit. If you, when you need to, you can bump it down a little bit when you need to, but it's much more consistent. So you don't necessarily need to work harder. It's, it's just, you need to continue to slowly layer on the fitness that you're accruing. And I've talked, I've said this to Jacob Sipkin before. I think this training thing is a game of attrition. It's like, who is going to keep coming back 
the longest and most consistently, that person is probably eventually going to rise to the top. They may not be the person who, who does the most in any given training session or who lifts the most in any given training session, but they're going to be the ones who don't have these prolonged periods of time away from the sport. You know, this month off where I just had to get away, I just had to stop training or, or whatever it may be. There's not these big holes because that stuff adds up. You get a few of those periods over the course of the year, you know, that's a, that's a quarter of the year that's gone. And then the rest of the year is playing catch up. Uh, I I think, so I think that's what it gets into. If your athletes are more consistent and they're maintaining a baseline level of fitness, you don't have to crush yourself. You can just make your increases. You can just bump your increases when you need to. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Um, and it is a challenge, right, with a barbell sport because it's not like you can just go play a pickup game at basketball to, you know, or shoot around or something like that. Um, so, like, some of the things that I tend to do is after a meet, no gear. Like, they'll just just come in and get under a barbell. Like, I don't – like, there's, there's a mental process to putting your knee sleeves on, tying your shoes, wrapping your wrist, tightening the belt um, that just it, – it ups the ante a little bit. So – we go no gear, just come in, start lifting, joke around, have some fun. Let's get the fuck out of here. I also, this is where I use speed squats is after, after a meet, I put a weight on the bar, eight to 10 sets of two and get the fuck out of the gym. Like 45 seconds rest. Um, it just, you know, you no thinking, just come in and lift. And that's kind of like, cause I think there's a benefit to getting away from the actual sport for a period of time. Uh, you know, like, having an off season where you can just kind of let your, your mind just kind of relax your body recover and stuff. But like you said, there's just this, you need to maintain a certain level of, uh, of fitness, so to speak, so that there's not this huge ramping up process and you're constantly trying to play catch up and putting yourself in some trouble. Um, I'd like to hear some of the ways that you, uh, you deal with that after a competition. Well, you know, it's all about what the athlete's willing to sign off on. I, I don't have a, necessarily a problem with taking time off. I don't have a problem with spikes and workload. We just have a conversation. He's like, listen, if you want to take a few weeks off, that's totally fine. But just, you're probably going to feel like shit when you come back. So we're not going to rush it when you come back. We're not going to try to max out and, and, you know, rush the process. You got to have that conversation. Um, Because I think, I think the problem becomes expectations. People, they, they take time off and then they, they come back and they expect to just jump right back into where they left off after the meet. And when that doesn't happen, then that's where the mental battle comes in. Their expectations and reality aren't quite meshing, but if you have that conversation, they're more so expecting it and it can be a little bit easier of a transition. The same could be said with spikes and workload. You know, if they have a meet coming up, if they decided to go to a meet that's five weeks away and they're like, I want to do it. Coach I was like, okay, we can do this. We're going to have to bump things up you know, a lot more than what we were doing because we weren't training for a meet. And so just, you know, there's maybe some, there's some risk to that, but you might feel a little sore. You might feel banged up. Are you cool with that? Yeah, I'm cool with that. Okay. Then you can have that conversation. So it's just that idea of informed consent. But after a meet, you know, with weightlifting, you're just basically what you described is just constraint manipulation. You're doing speed work. Well, what are you manipulating the task load on the bar. Um, but intent is changing. 
or it's it's remaining the same, high rate of force development, but the, the loads are lighter. So it may not, the intent doesn't necessarily change, but because it's lighter, you know, it feels a little bit different. Um, in weightlifting, we do similar things. We'll pull from blocks instead of pulling from the floor. Um, we'll pull, and, and because you can leverage yourself from the blocks, you know, obviously it's a reduced range of motion. Um, you're not as tied down to the bottom position. So like the starting position in the snatch is not the most comfortable thing in the world with those, with that wider grip. Um, so you pull from blocks and you can really just uh, put a lot of power into it. So the athlete, they, they feel athletic. Um, we'll do power variations instead of the full lifts. So they're catching it high. Um, I mean, if you pull, let's say you pull from blocks from like the mid thigh and you catch it in the power, it's not a very, uh, that, that movement, there's not a whole lot of stress in that movement. It's a very fast thing, but it gets, it still keeps the coordinative pattern of hip, rapid hip extension, rapid hip flexion, receiving the bar. Like it still keeps that there. Um, uh, we'll do similar things with what you said, speed squats, um, lighter deadlifts. We'll do, uh, some bar velocity type stuff. Um, and, and frequency is reduced a little bit, maybe like a day or so, but with weightlifting, it lends itself, the, the loads, the, the weights themselves are lighter. The snatch is never a heavy deadlift. It's never a heavy squat. And even the clean is still a low percentage of your maximum front squat and certainly a low percentage of your maximum back squat. So I think the lifts actually lend themselves to being um, a little bit easier mentally. It's all about, it's really just all about the intensities. Um, we'll do things like no feet snatches, no feet cleans where they're not, we're taking out the impact or the dynamic portion of the movement. So their feet are starting and staying in their squat stance. So it's still the coordinated pattern of open closed triple flexion, um, but they're not slamming their feet down. So we're taking out that dynamic impact. It just feels it's a little bit easier on the joints if they're feeling banged up and it self limits the intensity. So, they still get, they still have to pull on it and they still have to move fast, but the external load is just, it, it's absolutely lighter. Um, so it's less of a stress in, in that regard. Um, that, may, but, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I like that idea. Um, there's a, yeah, go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's just, there's, there's a few different variations in that realm. We'll go, uh, no hook. So the idea will be, we'll still push, we'll push variations, but there's self-limiting variations in regards to external load. So, uh, there's a couple papers on, on the hook grip itself. And this is just, and it's obvious. It's like, um, you know, using, having scientific research on like wearing cleats, they, they help you cut. Well, no shit. Um, if you ever worn cleats versus not worn tennis shoes on a slippery football field or soccer field, then you know that without having to, you know, read a study, but like the hook grip increases power. It increases force and rate of force development at the top of the pull. It's just, you're basically using straps. It's just your thumb. But if you use a no hook, but first of all, this is, 
it actually helps smooth out the bar path a little bit because uh, they're not yanking on it like a lawnmower, but it self limits the intensity, but it's, it's still very much a challenging movement to, to perform a snatch with no hook at an intensity in which the, you almost feel like the bar is going to slip out of your hands just a little bit. You have to really kind of be in tune with that, but it's a different type of like, get up for this lift. You're not, you're not scared of the weight. You're, you're more in tune with the movement. And, you know, anecdotally, I think that has a different level of mental stress that can afford doing it right after a meet because it's not, you're not getting up for a heavy load that you might, you're like in your head, I don't know if I can actually lift this. I hope I can actually lift it. Just, but if you're walking up to a, a weight that's 60% of your one rep max and you're just doing a no hook, you're going to be like, okay, really focus on the bar path. You know, you can lift it. You're not scared of the weight. And uh, so no hooks, no feet, these types of variations can keep people in the gym and we can, we can quote unquote, you know, go, go heavy and work up to heavy singles or doubles with those types of lifts and still get a really nice training session in, but it, it, it tones them way down from a, from an external load standpoint. Yeah. And that's similar to, you know, our no gear, we do this infant press. So you lay on the, lay on the bench, close grip, rounded back, flat back on the bench, feet up, um, you know, basically the exact opposite of a bench press and like, we'll work up to something heavy. And it's kind of fun. Cause everybody's like rolling off the, it's like trying to bench out of a canoe. Like it's just so unstable and, and it's fun. And I think those are like those little challenges keep the training environment fun, even on a, a time period when, uh, you're not necessarily like loading it up. Hi, everyone. I bet you're all surprised to hear my voice at the end. Alyssa Orlando, producer of Boston Strongcast. We're actually going to split this episode into two parts. It is quite long, so the second part will be coming out next Thursday. So you'll hear from us then. So stay tuned for part two. Thanks so much. <laughs>